Hi again! Welcome back to the Scandinavian History Podcast with me, Michael Schenkman. Last time, we returned to Sweden and followed the career of the country's last Jarl, Birger Magnusson. During the reign of King Eric the Lisbon Lame, the Jarl successfully put down a rebellion among the Falkungs and led a crusade to Finland. When the king died, Birger's own son, Valdemar, was elected to succeed him, and Jarl Birger Magnusson's power and influence grew even more. During his son's reign, Jarl Birger put down yet another rebellion among the Falkungs, introduced legal reforms, and maybe even founded Stockholm, even though that's less certain. What is certain, however, is that he never let his son, King Valdemar, come close to actually holding any real power over the kingdom. When his overbearing father finally died, Valdemar did get to rule, but only for a short while. He was soon usurped by his younger brother, Magnus. Valdemar spent the rest of his life in relatively comfortable captivity at Nyköping Castle. Today, we'll see what his brother Magnus used the royal power for once he had taken it from Valdemar and locked him up. Episode 50, Lock and Law. Despite having started his tenure as king with a coup d'etat and basically being a usurper, Magnus is traditionally remembered in a favorable light, by the few people who do remember and have an opinion about Swedish medieval monarchs. By those who remember him, Magnus is known under his nickname Magnus Ladulos, which is Swedish for Barnlock. Magnus' defenders and romantically inclined historians have stubbornly claimed that the king's nickname was a sign of the people's deep love and gratitude because he put a symbolic lock on the barn doors of ordinary Swedes, forbidding those higher up on the social hierarchy from taking what they wanted from the larders and storages of the peasants. The explanation is touching, but unfortunately it lacks any kind of connection to reality. It's much more likely that Magnus' nickname, Ladulos, is a corruption of Ladislaus, the Latinized form of the name Vladislav. You see, Magnus had Slavic roots on his mother's side. His great-grandmother was Princess Sophia of Minsk, who was married to Valdemar the Great of Denmark. This Slavic connection is also why his sister was called Rikissa, a name that's not particularly Swedish. But where does the explanation about the barnlock come from? Well, actually, it's not made out of whole cloth. King Magnus did in fact put an end to the custom that gave posh people traveling on official business for the crown the right to take what they wanted from peasants whose farms they were passing. This ban on using the peasantry as a free B&B was issued at Alsnö, most likely on September 27, 1280. But as momentous as that decision was, it's not the most famous decision declared by the king on that day. King Magnus had gathered a meeting with the nobility and the bishops at Alsnö on an island in Lake Mälaren in the fall of 1280, where he issued an open letter with four articles. This letter is known as the Ordinance of Alsnö, and it has traditionally been seen as the document that introduced the legal concept of aristocracy to Sweden. Nowadays, scholars tend to downplay the importance of the ordinance and more see it as a confirmation of already existing rights and privileges, not some revolutionary invention of a new social class. The first article is known as the hosting article, and it's the one that deals with the duty of peasants to host people on official business. 
The letter notes that this duty is widely abused by various noblemen who aren't sent by the king at all, but nonetheless use the excuse when they demand to be hosted by some random peasant, who obviously has no way of checking whether this particular aristo was sent by the king or not. The ordinance points out that many travelling noblemen are never rich enough to hesitate to visit a poor man's house, taking food and drink without paying and consuming it in a short while what the poor man worked long to attain. Instead of this much-abused custom, the ordinance introduced a system where every county should have an official person tasked with finding lodgings for people travelling through his county on official business for the crown. Anyone who ignored this new system and continued to show up at random farms demanding food and drink without paying would from now on be considered a robber and the punishment was a fee of 40 marks. Failure to pay would render the offender an outlaw throughout the realm. The second article in the ordinance was a confirmation of the peace laws introduced by King Magnus's father, the Jarl Birger Magnusson. It stipulated that if you kill someone in his home, when he's visiting your home or someone else's home, when he's at church or at the thing, you'll become an outlaw and all your property above ground, whatever that means, is confiscated. The property is then divided equally between the victim's family, the county and the king. If the victim's family agrees, the outlawry can be exchanged for a fine of 40 marks, but that fine didn't go to the victim's family, as you might have expected, but to the king for some reason. The same punishment also applied for anyone who broke a legal settlement, mutilated or raped someone, or apprehended someone for another man's crime. The third article of the ordinance is the most famous one, the one that deals with the aristocracy. The article states that those who serve the king in a military capacity and the people who work their land are exempt from paying taxes to the king. This is the first preserved legal document from Sweden indicating the existence of a social class that's exempt from taxes because of their service to the crown. But, as I mentioned a moment ago, nowadays it's seen as a confirmation of an existing exemption, not a fundamentally new one. A bit like the second article about the peace laws. The only part that may be new here is that the ordinance includes knights serving others than the king, meaning that the aristocratic tax exemption is expanded to the lower levels of the nobility as well. The fourth article limited the power of the aristocrats within their own fiefdoms, that is, lands they'd been granted by the crown. As a nobleman, you couldn't force the peasants who lived on your land to pay various fees that you had just made up as you pleased, and you weren't allowed to demand any kind of work or service from them without paying for it. This included the kind of freeloading visits that had been forbidden under Article 1 of the ordinance. And if a nobleman broke any of the rules in this article, he'd have to pay compensation to the peasants and he'd also lose his fiefdom, which would revert to the crown. So overall, September 27, 1280 was a good day for Swedish peasants. Their legal rights were strengthened against various abuses by the nobility, at least on paper. It wasn't particularly common for noblemen to lose their fiefs for abuse of the peasants living on their lands. It was pretty risk-free to abuse peasants, also after the issue of the ordinance. To lose your fief, you needed to upset the king, not your peasants. It's probably not a coincidence that the article talking about the rights of the aristocracy is the one that people remember. The church also strengthens its position during the reign of King Magnus Barnlock. Remember, he was in 
a delicate situation since he technically had usurped his brother, the legal king, and so he desperately needed the stamp of approval from the church for his new regime. He attained his ecclesiastical green light by granting the church and the members of the church hierarchy immunity within the realm. You could no longer sue a member of the cloth in a secular court, and any legal dispute involving a priest would have to be settled in a court made up of his colleagues instead. And that wasn't all. When Magnus's wife was crowned queen, the king granted the church sweeping tax exemptions as well. This meant that the church in Sweden strengthened its position even further politically, economically and culturally. I'm not convinced that it's in any way connected, but Sweden also saw its first and only medieval heresy trial soon afterward, in 1311 to be more exact. A farmer called Botulf from Gotrara in Uppland was charged with heresy after he had the audacity to express doubts about whether the bread and wine used during Holy Mass really turned into the actual, literal body and blood of Jesus through transubstantiation. To make matters worse, Botulf added that if it was true that the bread and wine really turned into flesh and blood, he wasn't interested in having any of it because he wasn't a cannibal. Under interrogation, the farmer refused to retract his views, and so due to his obvious connection to the devil, he was burned at the stake. As gruesome as the fate of Butulf was, this case is something of an outlier. There were no more heresy trials in Sweden in the Middle Ages. Well, with the possible exception of a very important one in 1520, but we'll get back to that momentous event in a future episode. For now, I'd like to briefly mention one last important administrative reform that King Magnus introduced, and that's the establishment of the Council of the Realm, or the Privy Council of Sweden. The council was set up in 1319 as a kind of inner circle of advisors or cabinet tasked with assisting the king in governing the kingdom. The council was made up of a small group of the very richest and most powerful noblemen in the land, as well as the bishops. It would play a central part in Swedish policymaking for hundreds of years, until it was abolished in 1789. In a way, it functioned as a kind of proto-government with proto-ministers, but unlike modern governments, there were no ministers for infrastructure, equality or the labour market. Instead, there were only three members with operative tasks, and they were the Lord Chancellor, head of the King's Chancery, so basically a combination of Prime Minister and Finance Minister, the Lord High Constable, responsible for the armed forces, and the Lord Chief Justice, responsible for overseeing the legal system and the courts. Of these functionaries, it was the Lord Chancellor whose role was best defined from the get-go, and who held the most power. Ambitious and competent chancellors would come to wield considerable influence in the future. That's more or less everything of note that King Magnus Barnlock had time to do during his reign, mostly because he died in December 1290. Life expectancy wasn't particularly impressive in the Middle Ages, not even for kings, and so dying in your 50s wasn't considered noteworthy or particularly early. But it was still inconvenient from a political point of view, since Magnus's three sons were all still underaged, which made the transfer of power risky, not least since Sweden was still officially an elective kingdom, and in theory some other more or less suitable candidate could sweep in and snatch the crown from under the runny noses of Magnus's sons. These three sons were Birger, Eric, and Valdemar. Birger was the eldest and the designated heir, even though he was only 10 years old at the time. The younger two had been equipped with a duchy each, Eric was the Duke of Sudermania, and Valdemar the Duke of Finland. 
In addition, King Magnus and Queen Helvig also had two daughters. The first was called Ingeborg, and she was engaged to the King of Denmark at the time of her father's death. They would eventually marry a few years later, making Ingeborg the Queen of Denmark. The second daughter was called Rikissa. She never married, because when the St. Clair Priory in Stockholm was established, her father not only donated large tracts of land to the nuns, but also gave them his daughter. So Rikissa spent her life as a nun, rising through the ranks and eventually crowning her ecclesiastical career as abbess at the priory. Before King Magnus died, he made the Lord High Constable the guardian of his sons. The Lord High Constable, whose name was Torkel Knutsson, wasn't just a member of the Council of the Realm, but he was also a relative of the royal family, so it made sense to appoint him to be the boy's guardian. In his role as Lord High Constable, Torkel Knutsson had been in charge of the Third Swedish Crusade in Finland. He had spread Christianity in Karelia and founded the city of Viborg. It was he who tried to capture the mouth of the river Neva and the land south of it for Sweden, but he was eventually chased off by the Russians. If that doesn't sound familiar, but interesting, then I recommend that you go back to episode 42, Swedish Finland, and refresh your memory. Even though Torkel Knutsson was happy to fight and kill to spread Christianity in the eastern borderlands, he was far less friendly to the church back home, especially compared to how generous King Magnus Barnlock had been. Not only did he not donate any daughter of his to the priory, but he also refused to recognize the tax exemptions the king had granted the church in exchange for the clerics turning a blind eye to his usurping his brother, the lawful king and all that. As I'm sure you're sick of hearing me say by now, the medieval church was an influential institution, and this decision to force it to pay taxes put Torkel Knutsson up against a powerful enemy. But he didn't care. He was also powerful. Arguably the most powerful man in the country, he was the war hero from the Third Crusade, and he was a member of the Council of the Realm, he was in charge of the armed forces, and he was the guardian of the underaged king. Who would dare to oppose him? He was untouchable. At least temporarily, until King Birger came of age. And that could become a problem. Torkel Knutsson wanted to ensure that his position of power be made permanent, so he made sure one of his daughters was married off to Duke Valdemar, one of King Birger's two younger brothers hoping that this would guarantee Torkel a place in the inner circle, also after his job as guardian of the king and his brothers was at an end. It was a good plan, but unfortunately it wasn't foolproof, as Torkel would realize sooner than he probably had expected. After a brief stint as a married couple, Duke Valdemar found a pretext to have the marriage annulled, and soon thereafter the three brothers had their former guardian, the Lord High Constable, arrested and brought to Stockholm tied to a horse. Once he reached the city, he was tried, found guilty on whatever charges they had made up against him, and executed. But the orchestration of the downfall of Torkel Knutsson would turn out to be one of the last things the three royal brothers could agree on. Soon after, they turned on each other. Or more specifically, the two younger brothers, Eric and Valdemar, turned on King Birger. The reason for the breakdown in fraternal relation was, of course, political. King Birger had close connections to the Danish court since his wife, Martha, was the sister of the King of Denmark, and he in turn was married to Ingeborg, Birger's sister, whom I mentioned before. Their brother, Duke Eric, was also about to marry into a royal family, because he was engaged to the Norwegian princess Ingeborg, 
not to be confused with his own sister with the same name. You may remember from episode 45, Lomander and Sons, that she, or rather her male descendants, were poised to inherit the Norwegian crown. Eric exploited his connection to Norway as much as he possibly could by laying claim to a large portion of the west coast of modern-day Sweden, land that then belonged to Norway and Denmark. The Danish bits in Halland had been won by Norway during the War of the Outlaws, that we also talked about in episode 45. King Birger didn't like this, since he felt that his brother Eric was getting too powerful. Maybe he'd one day be strong enough to threaten Birger himself. So, as a precaution, he took away Eric's Swedish duchy, Sudermania, hoping to reduce his potential for mischief. I guess it won't come as a massive shock to you to learn that Duke Eric didn't take this well. Robbing him of what he considered his birthright led to skirmishes between forces loyal to the king and the duke, but the involved parties soon realized that they weren't interested in a civil war after all. Or more likely, I suspect, they realized that they weren't able to win a civil war. So in the end, all three brothers got together to reach an agreement. The agreement they reached promised internal peace in Sweden, and Eric and Valdemar recognized King Birger as king and his son Magnus as his heir. The danger of a disastrous civil war had passed, and about half a year later, in late summer 1306, the dukes Eric and Valdemar even came to visit their elder brother, King Birger. The newly reconciled family spent a pleasant evening together, and all seemed well when they retired to their beds at night. But in the middle of the night, the dukes had the king and his wife arrested in their beds. They didn't get young Magnus, though, the designated heir, since he was smuggled out of the house by a quick-thinking courtier and brought to safety at the court of his maternal uncle, the king of Denmark. But his parents, the king and queen of Sweden, became prisoners. They were locked up at Nyköping Castle, the same place where the king's uncle, ex-king Valdemar, had spent the last years of his life. Duke Eric was now in control of Sweden, and since his fiancée was the heiress of Norway, and he himself controlled Halland, and enjoyed excellent relations with the enemies of the King of Denmark, Eric had all of a sudden become the most powerful man in all of Scandinavia. The King of Denmark wasn't going to accept this, though. He couldn't just sit idly by while his own sister and brother-in-law had been usurped and locked up in prison, so he invaded southern Sweden, pillaging and burning for a while. This activity certainly caused the local population all kinds of heartache and trouble, but it didn't change the balance of power in Scandinavia one bit. So in the end, he withdrew back to Denmark. What did change things was that Eric's future father-in-law, the King of Norway, had had enough. He thought Duke Eric had grown too powerful too quickly, and so he joined his Danish colleague in demanding that Eric and Valdemar release King Berger and his wife and reinstate them as king and queen. Without the support from Norway, the Duke's situation altered significantly. Now they had to contend against the forces loyal to King Birger on their own, and the King of Denmark could get back in the game at any moment. So Erik and Valdemar had to relent, and a new deal was reached, where Sweden was divided into three autonomous parts, each governed by one of the three brothers, Birger, Erik and Valdemar. This deal held longer than the seven months the last one had. It held for seven years. During those years, the Norwegian princess Ingeborg came of age so Duke Eric could finally marry her and start a family. They soon had a son, Magnus, whose dramatic life I hinted at back in episode 45. Still, the relations between King Birger and his brothers had been frosty ever since the time they'd locked him up. But time heals all wounds, they say, and when Duke Valdemar visited the king and the queen at Nyköping Castle in the fall of 1317, they had a good time together again. 
all was forgotten, water under the bridge and all that. Valdemar left with a good feeling, and an invitation for himself and his brother Duke Eric to come back to Nyköping to celebrate Christmas, together with the king and queen. The brothers did hesitate a bit. Should they accept the invitation and go spend Christmas with King Birger and his wife? It could be awkward, after all. They did lock them up and rob him of two-thirds of his kingdom. But on the other hand, that was seven years ago, and Valdemar had had such a lovely time when he visited Birger just now. It would be rude to decline the invitation. Maybe such a snub would risk rekindling the old conflict. In the end, they decided to go to Nyköping and celebrate Christmas together as one big happy family. They arrived in the beginning of December and were warmly welcomed. The very first night, there was a grand banquet in the castle, and everyone was drinking and making merry until the small hours. But in the end, Eric and Valdemar eventually went to bed, happy that they'd patched things up with their older brother. But their slumber was interrupted when a company of soldiers armed with crossbows broke into their rooms in the middle of the night and had them arrested. Once they had been apprehended, their brother the king swept into the rooms and reminded them of what they had done to him seven years before. This was their comeuppance. The Eric Chronicle, incidentally named after Duke Eric, one of the prisoners, describes how the brothers were thrown into the dungeon deep under the castle keep, chained up on each side of a pool of stagnant water. It must have been pretty grim, considering it was early December. King Birger was no doubt quite pleased with the way he'd managed to trick his brothers into his trap. He'd waited a long time for this. Revenge is indeed a dish best served cold. But the incident, known to history as the Nyköping Banquet, wasn't universally loved throughout Sweden. In fact, when the news got out that King Birger had arrested his brothers, Erik and Valdemar, their friends and allies throughout the country rose in rebellion to come to their rescue. King Birger wasn't prepared for that, and he struggled to take back control over the situation. When the rebels approached Nyköping, the king had to flee. But, according to tradition, before he did, he took the key to the dungeon where his brothers were locked up, and flung it into the river that flowed past the castle walls. So according to the chronicle, even though the rebels captured the castle, they failed to rescue the captive brothers in time. Eric and Valdemar starved to death in the dungeon at Nyköping Castle, and when the rebels finally managed to break down the door, they could only bring the corpses out to display them from the castle walls to the Duke's loyal forces waiting below. According to the chronicle, admittedly a text with a favorable bias to Eric, the sight of the emaciated corpses enraged the soldiers so much that they tore the whole castle down. In the meantime, King Birger was fighting an increasingly desperate struggle to stay in power. His son, the now 18-year-old Magnus, had invaded from the south with a Danish force, but it had been defeated and the heir himself was taken captive. King Birger had to withdraw to Gotland, and in the end he left the country completely and went into exile in Denmark. That meant that Sweden was once again leaderless. Ex-King Birger had been chased off into exile, and his brothers Erik and Valdemar were dead. There were two potential candidates to take over the crown, confusingly both called Magnus. Magnus Birgerson, who had been captured, and Magnus Eriksson, who was just a toddler. For fairly obvious reasons, neither of these Magnuses was ideal, so there was no obvious favourite to take over as king. But when representatives for the aristocracy, the church and the freeholding farmers of the realm met at Mura Stones outside Uppsala at Midsummer 1319 to elect a new king, 
they had to pick someone. In the end, they elected the three-year-old Magnus, who was the son of Duke Eric, who had starved to death at Nishaping Castle. Of course, he was a little young to be king, but the aristocracy didn't seem to mind too much. In fact, many of them probably thought this was preferable, since it meant that they'd be left alone to run their estates, and perhaps even the whole kingdom, as they pleased for many years to come, until King Magnus would come of age. But what happened to that other Magnus, who had also been a candidate for the top job? Ex-King Birger's son, who had led an invasion force into Sweden from Denmark, and who was now a POW, he could pose a threat to the new regime, and as long as he was alive, young King Magnus Eriksson could never feel 100% secure on the throne. So the following year, Magnus Birgersson was put on trial on some trumped-up charges, found guilty and executed, thus ridding the young king of a potential rival for the Swedish throne. Ex-King Birger himself died only a few months after his son. That meant that all three sons of Magnus Barnlock were now dead. Their mother, Dowager Queen Helvig of Holstein, was still alive though. She'd lived for another five years, during the first years of her underaged and unfortunate grandson, Magnus Eriksson's reign. Next time, we'll finally get to delve deeper into that reign. I hope you enjoyed this episode of the Scandinavian History Podcast. If you did, why not spread the word wherever you congregate with others who are also into Scandinavian history? Also, please consider leaving a stellar review, or at least five stars, on Apple Podcasts or Spotify, where you can rate podcasts nowadays. This is an excellent way to attract new listeners and to motivate me to go on producing the show. Another good way to support the show is to purchase some Scandinavian history-themed merch in the Scandinavian History Podcast webshop. I especially recommend something from the Odin's Lifehack collection. It's a line of merch with quotes from Havamal, accredited to the King of the Gods. You can get t-shirts, mugs, tote bags, and many other items with nuggets of Scandinavian wisdom, such as wake up early if you want another man's land or life, only fools hope to live forever by avoiding enemies, or speak useful words or be silent. Links to these amazing products and more can be found on the Scandinavian History Podcast Facebook page or on Twitter. If you haven't already, then please go to facebook.com slash Scandinavian History Podcast. Like and follow the page if you want to shop or if you just crave more content at least vaguely related to Scandinavian history. Via the Facebook page, you can also send me questions or angry messages about things I've said or not said on the show. If you prefer Twitter, then you can follow me and send me messages at Schenkman. That's S-H-A-I-N-K-M-A-N. I look forward to hearing from you. <laughs>